Well, friends, I find myself once again having to explain a rather odd sermon title. Beef. It's what's for dinner. All right, raise your hands if you remember that ad campaign. All right, a good many of you, a good many of you. All right, so Aaron Copeland's hoedown strikes up a, a plucky tune in the background while the camera cuts between scenes of families all across America settling down to dinner. All right, then the voice comes in, right? The voice. But there was actually two different voices. The first voice belonged to actor Robert Mitchum, and he talks about a great corned beef sandwich at 7th and 55th Street or a medium-rare porterhouse steak in Chicago. Others of us may remember the even smokier voice of Sam Elliott, as he prattles on about beef bourguignon and about three dozen other beef dishes before the tagline comes in, beef, it's what's for dinner. How was that? Is that pretty good? Yeah. 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 Well, all the physicians worried about heart health and all the members of the earth care team concerned about the ecological impact of the beef industry can breathe a sigh of relief. I am not encouraging us to eat more red meat. Today, I'd like to talk about the verbal form of the word, because at some point the expression to have a beef with somebody entered our slang lexicon. It's really unclear where the term or originates. It might, might trace back to the American West, where cattle ranchers and sheep farmers clashed over pasture land thus to have a beef with a competitor. Or perhaps it came from a common complaint among US soldiers who were none too pleased with the quality of their beef rations. It's hard to say where it came from, but with an entire Netflix show entitled Beef, the expression is clearly here to stay. Now, one need not look long or hard to find examples of people who seem to, well, really enjoy fighting with one another. It's almost like we feed off of conflict as a culture. So, yes, beef is what's for dinner. Here's the thing, though. When we characterize our adversaries as slabs of meat... Well, it naturally follows that our goal is to consume them, to chew them up and swallow until there's nothing left but bones, fat, and gristle. Jesus, however, had another idea. What if instead of consuming one another, what if we communicated? What if we sought to understand one another? What if I tried to get my adversary to hear me to really hear me. A reading from Matthew, the 18th chapter. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you 
as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Well, Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just a few weeks back, SpaceX launched its first starship, right? It was touted as the most powerful rocket ever built. Now you may remember that the test flight did not go as hoped or planned, and yet Elon Musk and the company insist that they learned much from the rapid, unscheduled disassembly. Ain't that a marvel of modern rebranding? Rapid, unscheduled disassembly. It gives the sense that one could easily reassemble it like a Jenga tower. But that's not true, because the thing exploded in air. And once it's blown up, there's no putting it back together. Sometimes I have to wonder if Jesus thinks of the church this way. It's barely off the ground before it explodes with conflict and infighting. This was clearly a preoccupation for the author of Matthew, because I want you to think about this for a moment. In this text, we find Jesus talking about the church, but the church does not exist yet in the story. It's an anachronism. And yet Matthew found the topic of church conflict to be so important that he put some rules for engagement on the lips of Jesus himself. This may well suggest that how to handle conflict is among the deepest concerns to Matthew's original community. They needed a word from Jesus on the subject. Now that we have a roadmap for dealing with conflict suggests that rapid, unscheduled disassembly need not be our story. After all, it's not conflict that kills churches. It's refusing to deal with conflicts. That's what tears a church apart. So Jesus gives the church some rules of engagement to ensure that we do it well. Now I won't retread the process. It's self-explanatory. It involves a widening circle of those involved, right? First try to resolve it yourselves, then bring a few more people in, then bring it to the whole church. But what I want to highlight is the end goal. Jesus says, if the member listens to you, then you have regained that one. The reason we confront one another is to regain one another. When conflict escalates to full-on beef, it consumes us. Rapid, unscheduled disassembly. But if we have reconciliation as our goal, then we regain one another. And I would, in fact, argue that when conflict is healthy, 
it can actually deepen our connections to one another. It makes us closer with one another. I want to tell you about Elliot. Now, Elliot and I do not always see eye to eye on the issues of the day. But when I was learning the art of preaching, there was this saying attributed to Karl Barth that was hammered into me. You preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. In other words, make sure your sermon speaks to what's going on in the world. Well, there are times when my sermon preparation will lead me to do just that, bring the scripture into conversation with something going on in the world today. And as I mentioned, Elliot and I don't always see things the same way. He would often disagree with me. In fact, it kind of got to the point where I would finish writing a sermon and say, you know, I won't be surprised if I hear from Elliot after this one. But what I want to share with you is the spirit with which Eliot does his disagreeing, because it's rather remarkable. First, he tells me where this issue intersects with his own experience, his own story. And furthermore, he tells me how those experiences have shaped his values. So that way, I walk away from the conversation with a little bit more of his story, a deeper appreciation for his character. Second, he often asks, if, is that just an illustration for a sermon, or is this rising to the level of broad congregational action? Is the church planning to do anything about this issue? Because if so, he would like to be a part of the conversation, if possible. And then third, Eliot always, always concludes with a statement of ongoing affection for me personally. A memorable one being, you know I love you better than Peter loved the Lord. Now as a pastor and a preacher, I've had plenty of disagreements, plenty of conflicts, many of them perfectly healthy, others not so much. Elliot, though, is my gold standard for how I hope to see differences come together in the church. I never live in dread of Eliot confronting me because he does it with grace, with love, and an eye towards regaining one another. No rapid, unscheduled disassembly there. And I think that's the wisdom in this admittedly procedural text. For the love of all that is good, please get your beef out in the open, before it blows up and consumes you, your enemy, perhaps the whole church in the process. Now, of course, Peter chimes in to clarify, after receiving this church conflict for dummies playbook, Peter's got to know, how many times must I run the play with the same person? And he ventures that suggestion, as many as seven times? He says it as if it's an extraordinarily high number, almost like he can't wait to hit number seven and write off whatever disciples annoying him the most immediately. But Jesus comes back at him not seven times, and then our translation renders it 77 times, but it could just as easily be rendered as 70 times seven. 
And I don't think he's saying 490 times and then you can be done with that person. I think Jesus is trying to tell us that maybe we shouldn't be keeping count or else we're not really forgiving. Now, I want to be clear here. There are different kinds of conflicts and there are different kinds of injuries. Careless, hurtful words are one thing. Predatory behavior, not okay. Chronic patterns of abuse, not okay. It's a whole different ball of wax, and we are not called to be doormats for those who would stomp all over us. These instructions are offered within the context of holy, covenantal relationship, where the injury is hopefully an exception to the rule. I want to conclude the sermon today with a rather extended story um, from a comedian and writer named Hassan Minhaj. He tells this story from his senior year of high school, and I hope it, it captures a little bit of what we're talking about. He says, one day, Mr. Davies, our AP calculus teacher, gets up in front of the class and he says, all right, guys, you are killing it academically but I want you to know that I'm making it mandatory for everyone in this class to go to prom. Now I'm in the back of the class laughing hysterically because there's no way he's getting this group of social misfits to prom. We've got the Jehovah's Witness girl. She's not going to prom. They used to sell cup of noodles in our cafeteria. Kids would eat the noodles and then leave their broth on the benches. Well, one kid in my class would check to see if the coast was clear, go up to the benches, and drink everybody's lukewarm broth. There's no way broth breath is getting a date to prom. <laughs> Come on, Mr. Dave, Mr. Davies, do the math. But Davies walks over to the board, he pulls it down, and there's a bracket with everyone's name on it leading up to the big dance. It was basically March Madness for nerds. Well, as the weeks go by, all of a sudden, kids started getting dates. Jehovah's Witness girl got a date. Broth breath popped a tic-tac, and he found a date, too. Three days before the dance, Mr. Davies walks up to the board, pulls it down, and the last two names are Hassan Minhaj and Bethany Reed. And the entire class howled. See, Bethany had just moved to Davis, California that year. She had been my study partner after school. We did intervals at her family's kitchen table on the regular. And for this first-generation Indian, whose parents argued in Hindi and whose house constantly smelled like frying samosas, she was the American dream. So after class, I'm walking to my locker. She turns to me and she says, Hassan, Ever since my family moved from Nebraska, you've been my best friend. Do you want to go to prom with me? And with a dorky smirk, I whispered, yes. But there's a huge logistical problem with me going to prom. My dad's rules were very simple. No fun, no friends, no girlfriends. You can have fun in med school. But I figured, hey, I've seen TGIF. You go upstairs, you talk to Danny Tanner, you pour your heart out, cue the emotional music, hug, and you figure it out. So I puffed my chest out and I said, Dad, I want to go to prom with Bethany. 
And he calmly replied in Hindi, what could roughly be translated as, Hassan, I will break your face. <laughs> Duly noted, Father. I ran upstairs, I told Beth, look, I'm gonna sneak out my window, climb down the roof, bike to your place, we'll dance it up, and if my dad kills me, YOLO, I lived a good life. <laughs> Prom night comes, I hop out the shower, I put on my J.C. Penny suit, and put on my Michael Jordan cologne, six puffs, one for each championship. I climb out the window, mount my yellow huffy, and I bike to Bethany's house with my legs extra wide so my slacks don't get caught in the chains. I'm balancing the corsage in one hand, I'm steering with the other, and when I get to her house, the sun's setting, and I take a moment to drink it in. This is the American dream. This is what we fought for. I ring the doorbell. Mrs. Reed opens up, and she has this concerned look on her face. And I look over her shoulder, and I see Jeff Burke, captain of the water polo team, putting a corsage on Bethany's wrist. Mrs. Reed touches my arm. She says, honey, Bethany didn't tell you. We think you're great, but got a lot of family back in Nebraska, and we'll be taking a lot of pictures tonight. We just don't think you'd be a good fit. I bike home, snuck back into my room, played video games in my suit. It's the nicest I've ever been dressed playing Mario Kart. Back at school on Monday, Bethany stops me at my locker and says, hey, whatever you do, please, please don't tell the class. My parents are good people. They just wouldn't understand. So seventh period comes, and right out the gate, Mr. D says, so how was prom, lovebirds? Everybody looked at me, and I said, yeah, I decided not to go. I just wasn't feeling it. And they all look at me with disgust, like, wow, you stood up the new girl from Nebraska, you jerk. I got socially crucified for this girl who was my best friend. Bethany and I never spoke after that. We just went our separate ways. The hardest part, though, is that for some time I thought her family was right, that I wasn't good enough. Who was I to ruin their picture-perfect American prom? Many years passed, and my father had a heart attack. And I drove up from L.A. to see him, and he was much more vulnerable than I'd ever seen him before. And I, I told him the story. And he said, Hassan, I'm disappointed in you. Because I lied? Because I snuck out? No, no, Hassan, because you did not forgive Bethany. When I first immigrated to the U.S., I was scared, scared of everything America had to offer. I was afraid you would get caught up in the wrong crowd, that you would get into drugs, which is why I tried to protect you from everything. Bethany's family, they were scared too. For whatever, for whatever reason, they were scared of people who looked like us. And you were scared of me, and Bethany was scared of her parents. But Hassan, you've got to be brave and the courage to do what's right has to be greater than your fear of getting hurt. So, Jesus, 
Why is it that we should confront the ones who hurt us with love? To regain one another, to prevent a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. How many times should we forgive? Well, even though it's the scariest thing imaginable, even though you might get really hurt, as many times as it takes. Amen.